Broadcasting from the Superbook Sports Studios, KTUS AM 1060, Tempe, Phoenix, and KSLX HD2, Scottsdale, Phoenix. It's time to hit the field with Extra Point, featuring Kayla Mortolaro and Bob Kemp on KDUS AM 1060. Tweet the show at KDUS AM 1060 or give us a call at 602-260-1060. The snap is back. The hold is down. You can't miss with this combination. And the Extra Point is good. Welcome in to Extra Point right here on KDOS AM 1060. As always, you can follow along with us online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. It's Thursday. It's May 11th. Bob Kemp, Kayla Mortolaro with you up until noon today. It's a game day, pivotal game six for the Suns. Win and they force a game seven, lose and the season is over. So we'll get into plenty of that as the show rolls on. In addition to that, we'll pop on out to the KDOS hotline around uh, 10.15 or so as we'll be joined by Gina Mizell. We'll take your phone calls as well. 10.30 and 11.15 today. 602-260-1060 is the number as always to join the program. But first, let's set the scene with today's poll questions and we'll start with the KDOS1060.com poll question. So what happens Thursday night? Nuggets plus three and a half or Suns minus three and a half. And Bob, your favorite outcome so far. We're in a 50-50 split. Okay, that's good. That uh, makes sense uh, to some extent, even though if you just go by, uh, if you're into the point spread trends, uh, the home team is uh, one and cover all five games of this series so far. We'll answer that question around 1130 today. Flipping it on over to Twitter at KDOS AM 1060. Will you pay close attention today to the 2023 NFL schedule release? And well, Bob, we're two for two right now in your favorite outcomes. We're in a 50-50 split between yes and no here. Yeah, I'm a little surprised uh, that the masses are 50-50 on this. Uh, I thought uh, when we kind of came up with this question yesterday that uh, would, I might be the only person in the world that didn't really care about this today, but apparently I've got people, at least at this point, that are on my side. Very good, and we'll uh, get into that a little Plus, bit. Plus, I think we already know the whole schedule this morning for the entire, every team except for the Cardinals. Nobody cares about the Cardinals, apparently, but everybody else, we seem to have at least uh, – some leaks of what the schedule is hours before it's supposed to be officially announced. Yeah, I woke up to Lions Chiefs getting things started for the 2023 NFL season. I couldn't go any longer without knowing when the Lions or Chiefs are going to play. I mean, thank God that was an early thing. I almost lost sleep over that last night. Not quite, but yeah, maybe, maybe not. Never, no way. Never mind. We'll get into a little bit more about the NFL schedule as uh, the show goes on. But for now, we have to start with the Suns. They're in a must-win situation tonight. Game six against the Nuggets from Footprint Center. The official injury report as of this morning was Chris Paul has been ruled out. DeAndre Ayton listed as questionable with his rib contusion. So I have to pose this question to you, though. Uh, does this feel like a game where Kevin Durant needs to be knocking down his shots, that they have to figure out a way for the Phoenix offense to flow and for him to get in rhythm so that he can just uh, you know, be the Kevin Durant that we expected him to be? Absolutely. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. And, you know, the eight and rib thing is uh, kind of adds to the uh, – I don't know if drama is the right word or not, but it adds to its other storyline for sure. But yeah, Durant's really only had one efficient offensive game in this series. 
You know, game four, he was 11 for 19 from the field. The other four games, he had seven turnovers and one assist in game one. Game two, he was 10 out of 27. Game three, he was 12 for 31. And then the last game, game five, he was 10 out of 24 and once again had five turnovers. Yeah, to your point as well, uh, to those numbers here, his eight games with the Suns in the regular season, he shot 57% from the floor, 53.7% from three. I realize that that's a bit inflated with such a small sample size. 6.4 rebounds, 3.5 assists, and averaging 26 points per game. Then in the five games with the Clippers, or with the Suns in that Clippers series, 51.8% from the floor, 45.8% from three, 7.6 rebounds, 6.2 assists, and he averaged 28.4 points per game. So far through five games in this series against the Nuggets, it's 45.8% from the floor, 22.2% from three, 10.6 rebounds, five assists, and 30.8 points per game. I think there's been two real factors here. One, Aaron Gordon has done a really good job on Durant. You know, the game that Durant actually, the one efficient shooting game, you know, Gordon was in foul trouble in the first quarter of that game and really the entire game. Uh, so I think that had something to do with uh, the efficiency in that particular game. The other thing is that Chris Paul has been out. And, uh, you know, he's had to do even more of the ball handling. That I think explains some of the high turnover games, even in that first game. When he had the seven turnovers, Paul was you know healthy and played that entire game. But the combination of you know Paul not get putting him in you know, good positions on a constant basis, and the fact that you know Aaron Gordon's done a really good job. Also to that point here, uh, we, we've talked a lot about the role players, and it really seems like so far this series, role players have had the success on their home court. So as it flips back here to Phoenix, uh, you know, who do you think has to be the guy in order to help with that floor spacing to be able to knock down some shots that will inevitably be open? We know Denver is really starting to collapse in on Devin Booker. I have to imagine that they would have a similar philosophy in tonight's game. Uh, so is it going to have to be a Landry Shaman again? Is it going to be TJ Warren? Is it going to be Terrence Ross? Does does campaign have to to show something here for tonight? I think all those things. Uh, you know, the effectiveness, they, they won the two games here, but really, if you take a look at those games, you know, Josh Landell had some good minutes in game three, was not particularly good in game four. Uh, TJ Warren hit two big threes down, two big shots, excuse me, one three, one two, down the stretch in game three. Not particularly good the next game. And Lander Shamit, uh, just, you know, he didn't do anything in game three. But game four, he was arguably the best player on the floor in the fourth quarter, if you count offense and defense. But none of those guys really played well in both of the games here. Uh, and neither, none of those guys played well in the same game simultaneously for the most part. So I think they need to get multiple performances out of those guys. I'm not sure. You know, Ross, Ross, if he's making shots, the campaign and Ross are somewhat similar. If they're not producing for you on offense, you kind of have to get them off the floor. And, you know, and campaign had some good moments in the games here. Uh, he actually had a, a, you know, the first half he was – yeah, more more than held his own in Game Five uh, earlier this week in uh, Denver, but in uh, that third quarter meltdown, they just attacked him, and he also had two turnovers to begin that that third quarter, which was the disaster when they gave up 39 points. So turnovers and defensive uh, problems, uh, they kind of had to get him off the floor. 
So uh, with all of this in mind here, I come with some statistics. They're just, you know, stats. Uh, A stat that uh, when an NBA series is tied 2-2, the winner of Game 5 historically goes on to win the series 82% of the time. So that obviously favors the Nuggets in this particular situation. Then, since 2003, teams that are down 3-2 at home are 39-69 and in Game 6. I thought that that was kind of fascinating here. I know that there's been, you know, kind of a difference in how uh, the the format goes, whether it's been a 2-3-2 two, two, or, you know, however right. it's kind of gone over the course of the NBA history here. So it's not just so definitive to say, well, that typically means that it's the higher seed playing at home in game six. I totally, I think that's a really good point you bring up about the, we've had, they've changed the format of these series, especially the finals back in the day when it was, uh, you know, much more of a you know, East versus West thing. And there, you know, it was, it was just a, it, it was, you know, these numbers mean nothing to me, quite frankly, because, you know, a, a number one, it's history. Great. You know, you know I could look back and tell you everything is going to happen after the fact. Secondly, the fact that playoff formats in this league have changed so frequently over the last 50 years, it's kind of hard to really – these are all clumped together, and I don't understand the relevance there. Uh, then we also have to chat a little bit here about the all-NBA teams. Uh, so Devin Booker, he received one second-team vote and seven third-team votes, but he didn't make any of the all-NBA teams here. First team, probably no surprise, forward Giannis, uh, forward Jason Tatum, center Joel Embiid, guard Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and guard Luka Doncic. A little bit surprised here about Shea Gilgis-Alexander and uh, maybe Luka Doncic earning first-team honors here. Instead of who? Well, uh, if you look here at the second team, they have guard uh, Donovan Mitchell. They also have guard Steph Curry. If you look at third team, guard De'Aaron Fox and guard Damian Lillard. Um, so you, you I, could... I, I don't know how it could be anybody but those two guys on first team based on this season, which is supposed to be how you do this. Oh, yes, it is supposed to be on this season. Um, I guess, you know, Steph Curry did miss several games, so that's probably... He, a, he was on... Yeah, he missed a ton of games. Yeah. And he wasn't that good in some of the games he played during the regular season, especially on the road. You know, the road Warriors stats, he had a lot to do with that. Uh, the second team was center for Nikola Jokic. Uh, as I mentioned, guard Donovan Mitchell, guard Steph Curry, forward Jimmy Butler, and forward Jalen Brown. Third team uh, center was DeMontis Sabonis, guard De'Aaron Fox, guard Damian Lillard, forward Julius Randle, and forward LeBron James. Uh, I guess I am just a bit surprised here that Devin Booker didn't make one of these three teams. Suns weren't good in the regular season. They were fourth in the, in the conference, so that has a lot to do with it, whether it's right or wrong. Um, you know, there were, you know, Booker missed 20-some games during the season too, right? He did, yes. And and there's actually they, – they went through a list of a lot of these players actually who are on these teams moving forward with the new CBA changes. They won't be eligible for these honors because they missed too many games because you now have to at least play 65 games. That's a really good way to do it. You have to, if you have to do this crap at all, which obviously if people haven't listened to the show before, there is probably no human being anywhere on planet Earth that thinks more, or excuse me, less of regular season awards in the, you know, team sports and 
you know, just, you mentioned a couple guys there. I mean, Sabonis and Julius Randle, we going to vote for them at this point on the All-NBA team, the way that they play in the playoffs? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't. You know, this is when it matters. So they, if they really wanted to be serious about this, they just wait until after the, the playoffs end, and then they could actually have a real All-NBA team. I did see that because John Morant didn't make any of these teams, he lost over $38, $39 million because they do put contract incentives in things with all of these teams. So that may be something That's that, true. you know, agents and things have to start figuring out moving forward. But we'll put a pin in this conversation. We'll take a break. And on the other side, we'll be joined by Gina Mizell as she chats all things Philadelphia 76ers with us. They have the chance to close out the series tonight against the uh, Celtics. So we'll get her thoughts on the 76ers next. It is the Extra Point. Tune in weekdays to the Sports Zone with Bob Kemp from 9 to 10 a.m. on KTUS AM 1060, KTUS1060.com, and with the KTUS 1060 app. Extra point right here on KDOS AM 1060. As always, online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. The Philadelphia 76ers have the chance to close it out tonight in Philly against the Boston Celtics. So we pop on out to the KDOS hotline as we're joined by Gina Mizell with the Philadelphia Inquirer to chat all things 76ers. Gina, it's Bob and Kayla today. How are you? I'm doing well, guys. How are you? We're doing pretty great. Uh, no complaints here on a Thursday. I, w- I want to get your perspective here, though. When we look back at this series, the 76ers and the Celtics, all the way back to game one in Boston, the team was playing without Joel Embiid. He had the knee injury. They received a 45-point performance from James Harden. So at that moment, after game one, how surprised were you with Harden's performance? But then did that kind of set the tone and become a catalyst for something in this series? Yes, first of all, I was surprised by James Harden's performance because he had really struggled um, in the Brooklyn Nets series uh, in the first round, particularly with finishing at the rim, and just didn't know that he still had that in him. And lo and behold, then he had another game in game four and the game-winning shot in both of those two games to kind of keep the Sixers afloat series. But, yeah, that was, I think, a huge tone setter for this series. But even coming out of game one, I still – I was curious to see how Joel Embiid would look when he came back from the injury. Um, you know, all the MVP stuff was sort of swirling around it. He wondered if that would be a distraction of some. So, yeah, this series has been weird and unpredictable. And I'm like, can, and in some ways, I cannot believe the Sixers have a chance to close it out at home tonight. But it's been very strange and entertaining and fun to watch. It's competitive. And I'm really interested to see what comes tonight because every time I think I've known what's going to happen, the exact opposite. <laughs> oh, I'm done projecting. <laughs> well, okay, I might get you to do a little more projecting here at some point, though. But uh, okay. you kind of answered my question there. You're, you're surprised they're up 3-2. Why are they up 3-2? to two? Yeah, well, again, James Harden's performances in, in games one and four, which, like, bookended two really bad performances in games two and three when he only made five of his 28 shots. I mean, that kept them afloat. And then going back to Boston for Game 5, uh, they, that was you know a performance where Joel Embiid has a 30-point outing and, of course, that amazing uh, block in the second half that sort of, I think, will go down as a potentially a defining moment of this series and this playoff run. 
but you had James Harden kind of settle into 17 points, 10 assists, only eight shots, a lot of free throws. Like, that's what they need out of him. And then I really think the X factor was Tyrese Maxey. He obviously scored 30 points in Game 5, but had really struggled with his shot against the Celtics, not just in the series, but basically in his career. They've been the toughest defensive matchup for him. And so, again, not saying you need 30 points out of him every single night, but if you can get you know, a good complimentary offensive performance from him, and then the defensive performance on Jason Tatum and just mixing up coverages, all of that sort of came together in Game 5, and so that's why I'm really curious to see what Boston does to try to adjust with their season on the line and, and you know, the desperation and the sense of urgency and trying probably anything and everything because this is the only opportunity you might have to do that. Gina Mizell with the Philadelphia Inquirer here on KDOS AM 1060 in the Extra Point. One more for me on Joel Embiid here. It does seem like his mobility is improving as each game goes on. So so what exactly is he dealing with here, and is there no further risk of damage as he continues to, to play on it? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a fine line between it being unsafe for someone to play with an injury and then just kind of pain tolerance and and being able to handle it. So game one obviously held out, and then he kind of had crossed that threshold where he played with a brace for the next um, three games and then did not have a brace on for game five for the first time. So I agree with you in that he's looked a little bit better each time. Um, His conditioning has been a little bit up and down. He admitted he was gassed at the end of the fourth quarter of, of game four and then kind of had to rev himself back up for overtime that the Sixers ended up winning. But um, I thought looked better in that regard in, in Game 5. And so I think, you know, especially tonight, if the Sixers do not win and then they have to go back to Boston for Game 7, they'll have two days off, which that's the first time in this series there's been more than one day in between games. So I think that would be a huge, you know, factor potentially going into Game 7, having that extra time. And then, of course, if the Sixers do win and move on, then they're going to have for sure a couple days off before the um, conference, conference Finals would start. So, yeah, I think it, it's true in that he's kind of gaining steam physically, mobility-wise, comfort-wise, you know, getting back uh, reacclimated to the offense. Like, all of that has been sort of a steady progression. And, yeah, I think if Boston loses this series, they can look back on the beginning of this series and really look at that as a missed opportunity because Joe just seems to be getting better and better in kind of all aspects as the series goes along. You mentioned Boston adjustments for tonight. So what what should we expect? What should we look for uh, maybe early in the game to give us an idea what they might do differently? Yeah, I'll be curious to see how they defend this team because uh, James Harden was talking after game five about how they kind of opted to more clog the paint, and that's just really opened up the pick and roll for them, particularly with like those nice little pocket passes to Joe for some free throw jumpers and that type of thing. And so – yeah, do they, what does Boston do defensively? I mean, they were the second-best defensive team in the NBA as far as efficiency during the regular season, but have dropped during this playoff run, or this playoff run, not just in this series, but also in the first round against Atlanta. And they've got a lot of great individual defenders when you look at Marcus Smart and Robert Williams and Derek White. And, you know, yeah, who do they put on? Do they switch up any matchups? You know, does Tyrese Maxey have another strong game? Does Tobias Harris get going? Like, just kind of what do they try – stop because they've done a lot of different things as far as switching as far as dropping the big man back um, so yeah what do they do right off the bat and then if that doesn't work or that does work like what other potential wrinkles do they throw because like I said they kind of need to try 
anything and everything at this point because there's no more. You can't waste any bullets when your, your season is on the line. Gina Mizell with the Philadelphia Inquirer here on KDOS AM 1060 in the extra point. So the Celtics, from their perspective offensively, they want to shoot threes. And so mm-hmm. are the 76ers doing anything differently defensively that's keeping the Celtics three-point percentage in this series low and especially compared to their four regular season matchups when the Celtics kind of feasted in that area? Yeah, no, that's a great point, and that's that's kind of a, a cognizant adjustment since Joe Mazzulla became the Celtics head coach. Is he talks a lot about the numbers game and the math of you know obviously three points is more than two points, and so finding the balance of how many three point shots you want to put up, and so no, it's it's kind of similarly like what I was talking about with the Celtics is that the the Sixers have kind of done a, a, a different a variety of different coverages, and and certainly having Joel Embiid back and and getting more mobile sort of allows him to be a roamer at times and to kind of protect the rim. He had four blocks in game five. But uh, in talking with Doc Rivers yesterday after their film session, um, you know, he mentioned that rewatching the game, there were some shots that the, the, the Celtics just missed. And so you can't bank on that happening every single game. But that's, yeah, that's closing out. That's, uh, you know, using a guy like P.J. Tucker, who's such a great communicator on that end of the floor and just trying to, you know, limit those, those shots as much as possible. But, yeah, you can't bank on Jason Tatum. I think he's like missed his first eight shots. You know, Al Horford is has killed the Sixers at times during the regular season and the playoffs, but he was really bad from three-point range uh, last game. So, no, you kind of can't bank on that happening again, but also they've done a pretty good job of, of limiting those opportunities uh, it, during the series so far. Daniel House, good minutes mm-hmm. in game five. Why did Doc go with him? <laughs> yeah, former Suns legend Daniel House, right? That's <laughs> so, right. No, it, was, it was a big surprise. <laughs> and he ended up being the guy that I wrote about after game five, and it was one of those situations where I did not walk into this arena tonight expecting to write 900 words about Daniel House. But uh, as far as why Doc <laughs> went with him, um, you know, he, he's a guy who's very active, he's physical, he's athletic on both ends of the floor. Um, you saw him get out and transition a lot. And I think kind of the X factor is that he played with James Harden in Houston. And so they have kind of a natural connection as far as Daniel knows what to do when James Harden has the ball in his hands. And maybe um, they you know, were supposed to run a certain play, but that's not working. And so Harden kind of just goes into, you know, not freelancing, but sort of figuring out what to do and just kind of going off of feel. And Daniel House kind of knows what to do in those situations, perhaps a little bit better than someone like a Jalen McDaniels, who the Sixers acquired at the trade deadline, who's only been here since February. And that's, you know, no knock on McDaniels, but it's just a, it's an experience and a feel and a chemistry thing that you just can't fake. It only comes with time. So, yeah, we were all very surprised when he came into the game on Tuesday night and then even more surprised to just see the impact. But um, he's kind of a classic story of one of those guys who's a really good locker room presence he's really funny you can tell guys enjoy being around him and so um to see him get that opportunity in such a huge game uh was kind of cool and so that he, he made for a good story and would not be surprised if he was the ninth guy in the rotation again tonight just based on how well he played on tuesday well let's just stay there with the 76ers bench here so you know how has doc been using the bench the rotations has anything surprised you about it and, and i mean certainly though when you're looking at bench production from an offensive standpoint the celtics at least through games one through four certainly had a massive bench advantage yeah yeah and a lot of that obviously has to do with malcolm brogdon the, the sixth man of the year on the Celtics side but um no the the, the bench as far as the top eight guys, no big surprises there with uh, D'Anthony Melton, uh, Paul Reed, and George Niang. And then 
Um, yeah, that ninth guy has kind of been McDaniels, who has struggled in his first playoff appearance after the Sixers traded for him, and then Daniel House. So that's been the major surprise. And then it's just, I think, been a matter of um, how you use those bench players. You know, Melton is a guy who started for a big chunk of the year, and so he can be used in those kind of three-guard lineups or want an extra perimeter defender on the floor. Uh, you know, Niang, obviously, he's their best three-point shooter, and so he needs to be making shots, which he did. Um, in game four and, and has had some opportunities to get those looks. And then, you know, Paul Reed is kind of a fan favorite where, um, you know, he comes in and just needs to kind of survive those Embiid minutes, but he plays really hard. He's a good rebounder. Um, has come a long way as far as um, his offensive game and, you know, knowing how to screen and roll and, and get the ball and, and finish. So, uh, yeah, like, like you said, they're, they're not always going to be the guys who put up the amount of points as Malcolm Brogdon does or some of those other, you know, Celtics that come off the bench, but, they kind of have their own separate roles and what they need to do when they're on the floor. And, and the big stretches for that group are at the top of the second and fourth quarters because James Harden plays with usually those four bench guys. And so um, that's kind of a, a situation where, you know, they got to survive those minutes when Joel Embiid is off the floor. That kind of sometimes opens up James Harden to score a little bit more. But, yeah, those are the big stretches for those, those guys just to kind of hold the fort, um, you know, when, when Embiid is off the floor. Yeah, I listened to a little Boston talk radio earlier this week, and uh, between okay. uh, the between between the Bruins losing and the Celtics on the verge here, uh, I'm curious. Do you think the Celtics are you know the, the players and the you know, organization, you know, coach, players, etc., feeling some heat because of what's going on there? Yeah, and I actually my first thing that I did when I came to Boston for Game One was that was the night the Bruins lost. So I was like at a sports Ooh. bar with a friend and watched that meltdown happen. And then Game One happened where the Celtics lost, and then <laughs> yeah. they sort of obviously got back on the train tracks and like now are on the verge again. It's very interesting to watch that unfold. But yeah, I mean you look at this roster, and you know certainly they're the most talented team remaining in the NBA playoffs now that the the Bucks are out and the guys they bring off the bench you know a Malcolm Brogdon a Grant Williams a Robert Williams and you're like man this team is so talented um, but yeah they kind of have just been a team even going back to the first round where they sort of screw around and eventually do enough to advance and and I'll see if they have that in them again this series um you know they were down three to two to the Bucks last year and came back and won that series of seven games they certainly you know have the capability but uh, you know, this, this coaching matchup has been really interesting with Joe Mazzula going through this for the first time as a young coach that was kind of thrust into this role after the whole Ime Udoka situation. So, yeah, it's been it's been kind of interesting to, to watch this unfold. You know, obviously Philly fans are, uh, I, I don't even know if cautiously optimistic is the right word. They like, don't even know what to do with themselves. But, yeah, if the Celtics lose this series after the Bucks got eliminated in the first round. Uh, I can't imagine people will be very thrilled um, in that city, given uh, there's there's no passion in Boston, you know. But they will they will be, I'm sure, very uh, have some opinions if this uh, you know goes haywire tonight or potentially on Sunday. Gina Mizell with the Philadelphia Inquirer here on KDUS AM 1060 in the extra points. So when it comes to this matchup of Doc Rivers, Joe Missoula, uh, you know what sort of strings are Doc Rivers pulling this series that that seems to be working that maybe has um, eluded him in series before. Four. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the personnel stuff like we were talking about before with Daniel House and, and some of the defensive uh, versatility that they've shown in, in different games so far this series have, have really shown through. But, I um, mean, yeah, and Joe Missoula on the opposite side it has made some uh, critical, um, interesting calls, whether it was you know not calling timeout 
at the end of game four, um, you know, just uh, kind of it seemed like there's been a lack of adjustments at, at certain points. And, and really just uh, it's kind of inexcusable the way the Celtics came out flat in, in game five in front of their home crowd. I mean, I was in that arena and it did not feel like a playoff atmosphere. It kind of felt like just a, you know, a heightened regular season game, but it didn't feel like a critical uh, you know, atmosphere for, for a big playoff series. And then the Celtics didn't really give their fans any reason to get excited, and they actually got booed off the court. So, um, yeah, again, like I think you're seeing just any young coach or any coach in that position for the first time is going to go through some growing pains and go through some moments where they have to make tough decisions and, and maybe make mistakes. But it, it's different when you're doing it with a team that doesn't have the microscope on it, as the Boston Celtics always will, and then particularly – in the playoffs when everything is just so magnified. So, no, I would say that as much as Doc Rivers gets criticized, especially by this fan base, and, again, we'll see if they're able to close it out because we know Doc Rivers has some some trouble uh, closing out playoff series. Um, He's outcoached Joe Missoula in this series, and so that has been a really interesting development to kind of see, particularly he is very maligned and very um, criticized here in Philadelphia, and that's something that – uh, to see him kind of win this battle so far um, has been an, an interesting kind of thing that's unfolded so far. Last one for me, um, you know, as far as uh, this this the, as far as the, the the actual series itself goes, but uh, yeah, give me one more thing that uh, we should pay attention to tonight. I, I got a better question. Let me ask you about it real fast. I should have asked this earlier about you know, Joel Embiid. You've watched him play every game. What stands out to you now that you've seen him play every game? Yeah, I mean, he's just got such an incredible blend of dominance and skill in that he's obviously a very large human who can score with force and score with power. But the way his game has developed in the last couple seasons in particular, where he's playing more at the elbow and the nail and kind of facing up more and can see the floor better. And so that allows him to shoot off the dribble and drive off the dri- and make plays off the dribble. But also he's become a much better passer because he can notice when the double teams come and the extra defender comes and he can dish it out to guys, you know, on the perimeter or just find his teammates. And so that combination of, of uh, power, of skill, of basketball IQ, all of those things are, are why he's the MVP. And then obviously he does it on both ends of the floor too with the way he can protect the rim. So, um, you know, I've, I've covered a lot of incredible players uh, in, in the NBA right now. When you look at a, a Devin Booker, a Chris Paul, and Nicole Jokic while it was in, in Denver. Um, and Joe is just, yeah, he is, um, he's obviously had the best season or the best player this season. That's why he's the MVP. But um, just an incredible blend of doing stuff that a center should not be able to do. So, yeah, that seeing him every day, that is um, really what's impressed me is, is just that, that combination of sort of everything in, in one package. Gina, as always, we appreciate your time. Have fun tonight, and we'll catch up with you down the road. All right, sounds great, guys. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Once again, she is Gina Mizell with the Philadelphia Inquirer. And, yeah, Joel Embiid, he won the uh, you know the MVP this year. But maybe what's most impressive to me is that There was always all the talks about his commitment to his craft, right? Like there was those reports that, uh, you know, nutritionists had to go to his home and make sure that he was eating properly and that there was a lot of team focus about getting him prepared. And he seems like he's now really taken that all to heart and intrinsically wants to be great. 
Well, I think the best story is that one of the nutritionists went to his house and you know, they had all this stuff ordered for him and all of it was just kind of like stored away in the refrigerator and all this, you know, you know, junk food wrappers all over his apartment or house or wherever he was living at that point. 602-260-1060 is the number. We'll take your calls in the break. Get to you on the other side. It is the extra point right here on KDOS AM 1060. We'll do what's best for the team, and we'll do what's best for you. The Rich Eisen Show, coming to you weekdays from 3 to 5 p.m. Here on KTUS AM 1060 and KTUS1060.com. Ten forty-two, right here on KDOS AM ten sixty. It is the extra point. Thanks to Gina Mizell, Philadelphia Inquirer, for her time on the show chatting all things seventy sixers. If you missed any of that interview, you can podcast over at KDOS ten sixty dot com or with the KDOS ten sixty app, powered by SuperBook Sports. Taking a look back to yesterday, though, the Arizona Diamondbacks lost five to four to the Marlins. Now. There's one reason why this is also interesting here is that the Marlins have now set a Major League Baseball record by going 12 and 0 in one run games so far this season. That's kind of impressive in itself that one you've been in that many closely contested games, but then you've come out on top 12 out of 12 times. Yeah, and especially cuz they can't hit. That's actually why they've been in so many close games. They're the worst offensive team at least entering this week, and I don't think anything's changed the last three or four days here, but at least entering this week, you can pick your whatever offensive category you want to pick, and the Mar- the Marlins are the worst team in the National League in that offensive category. And yesterday, uh, it was really Merrill Kelly had one bad inning, and then the bullpen didn't hold a tie game in the late innings. And, uh, you know, Kelly had the, the enter of the fourth inning, actually retired the first 10 hitters of the game uh, and then gave up a, a single, a walk, and then gave up a three-run homer. Uh, the thing yesterday that was most disappointing with the Diamondbacks is that they just couldn't get anything done offensively. They scored four runs in the fourth inning, but those runs came on one hit. That's uh, Edwin Cabrera couldn't find home plate. He walked four guys, balked home a run, you know, Perdomo, who's had a very good season so far, got a single for a couple of runs. But that's it for the Diamondbacks yesterday offensively. And it was a, a very disappointing uh, series. I think it's been a very disappointing homestand thus far. Ten-game homestand against the last-place Nationals. And quite frankly, they were fortunate to win two of those games. Uh, and then they just lost two out of three to not quite the last-place Marlins because the Nationals are in that same division and now they play the Giants for four and they're almost you know they're only like a half game ahead of Colorado now to avoid uh, being in last place in the National League West. Yeah, so to your point here, Merrill Kelly's line, six innings pitched, four hits, four runs, one walk, six strikeouts, and one home run. As for tonight's ball game, uh, 640 start. The Giants are sending Alex Cobb to the hill. Uh, he's 2-1, and 2.01 ERA, 38 strikeouts, yeah. and going up against Tommy Henry, who's 1-0, 5.17 ERA, and seven strikeouts. Uh, in fact, just shows you how little the odds makers and the bet- the betting market thinks of Tommy Henry is, you know, the Giants are just mentioned they're not good. Uh, the Diamond- Diamondbacks are roughly a six to five favorite in this game tonight. Now, Cobb's been very good so far for the most part. Uh, but, you know, Henry, uh, unfortunately, one of several pitchers on this staff 
pretty much everybody but you know, Gallon and, uh, and, and obviously Merrill Kelly, they just don't get very many swings and misses, and they, you know, they, they, there's not much margin for error. Uh, when the Diamondbacks have anybody starting a game, really maybe even the bullpen at the, for that matter right now, not much margin for error of any of these guys unless it's Gallon or, or Merrill Kelly in the mound. A quick look at the NLS standings. You do now have the Dodgers on top uh, two and a half games over the Diamondbacks. The Dodgers are sitting at 23 and 15. The D-backs are 20 and 17. Then you have the Padres sitting at 19 and 18. The Giants that they're competing against here at 16 and 20. And the Rockies at 16 and 22. And once again, the Dodgers and the Padres play another series this upcoming weekend. Of course, the Dodgers won two out of three last weekend in San Diego. And uh, you know, the, the Padres are playing right now at Minnesota. And last I saw it was one nothing after Tatis hit a leadoff homer in that game. But uh, you know, they, one one now. Dodgers are okay. Dodgers are off today, and then they play three games in Dodger Stadium this weekend. Yeah, it's weird. There's only six games in Major League Baseball today, uh, so a little bit of a light schedule. Uh, but you do have the Rays and the Yankees. So the Rays are coming off of a 2-1 loss to the Orioles. The Yankees are coming off of an 11-3 win over the A's. So in tonight's contest, it's going to be Drew Rasmussen, who's 3-2, 3.11 ERA, 40 strikeouts against Domingo Herman, 2-2, 4.35 ERA, and 44 strikeouts. The biggest news yesterday for the Rays, unfortunately, was another pitching situation, another injury for the Rays pitching staff. And Tyler Glasnow, who is yet to pitch this season, and was expected to be back at some point this week, has suffered a setback, and now he's out indefinitely. That's not good for the Rays. Can they manage to make it through this crazy month of May? But it also sounds like some of these other injuries might be much longer than just a 10-day DL stint. Oh, yeah. They've got uh, you know, Tommy John surgeries on the horizon, uh, if it hasn't already happened. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's been uh, you know, off to a great start, and uh, you know, pretty much any stat you look at, they're number one in baseball on that particular stat, and uh, they're off to a, a start that I, heard, I saw them compared to the – whenever you're compared to the 1984 Detroit Tigers and pretty much anything – uh, especially, I believe it was 35 and five. The Tigers were that particular year to start the season. Yeah, you know, the Rays had like the second best record to start a season since, uh, you know, really the best record to start a season since that Tigers team in uh, 1984. But uh, they're kind of just running out of pitchers. They've had to use openers and uh, you know, twice in the last three or four games now. And you know, they were the kind of the originators of the opener. And I think that they maybe got a little too much credit for being so smart and so creative, but they were desperate and had to do it. And then when they actually got to the stage last year and then the start of this year where you thought they had five real legitimate starting pitchers, unfortunately they've had guys go down with injury, multiple guys now, three starters, in fact, out for a long length of time here. Now this is crazy. In the win column, uh, the AL East, all five teams have more wins than every single team in the AL Central. So the Rays are on top, as we've been talking about here. We'll see how long they continue to stay there. Twenty-nine and nine. The Orioles at twenty-four and thirteen. The Red Sox at twenty-two and sixteen. I'll just move past how do the Red Sox keep winning games. Blue Jays at twenty-one and sixteen. Thank you. <laughs> and the Yankees at twenty-one and seventeen. Then you look at the AL Central. The 
Twins are leading the division, but they're at 20 and 17. And then it goes to the Tigers at 17 and 19, the Guardians at 17 and 20, the White Sox at 13 and 25, and the Royals at 11 and 27. Well, yesterday, you know, the Red Sox won in part because the Braves are also running out of pitchers. Unfortunately, Alex Free or Max Free, excuse me, is on the injured list now, and he's going to be out for a lot, quite a while, it appears. And also, you know, Kyle Wright, who was baseball's only 20-game leader last season, he's on the injured list, and he might be out for an extended period of time. So the two best teams in baseball to date, in my opinion, are the Braves and the Rays, and both of them now have multiple starting pitching injuries. Now, it's still early in the season here, but you have chronicled some of these pitching injuries that are definitely season ending. So, you know, it still gives you time, I guess, to figure out how to weather the storm. So as a general manager, coaching staff, you're trying to figure out what to do, whether or not you you look to your minor league system or you try to figure out, you know, how to weather this storm ahead of the trade deadline. Is there any sort of, I guess, strategy or is it just kind of how you see yourself going down the road and how do these wins and losses continue to 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 tick away i think it depends on the organization i mean the braves always seem to have pitchers ready uh they're going to be tested certainly in that area now for sure so we'll see how that goes there um as far as uh you know the the trade deadline i don't know how many pitchers are going to be available that are any good because pitching is really struggling Uh, starting pitching is down this year in major league baseball all kinds of uh, questions as to why uh, the pitching injuries are up in Major League Baseball. You know, the Athletic had an excellent story last week chronicling there were more pitchers that went to the injured list in April than we have ever seen before. And there's plenty of players and teams that are blaming the pitch clock. That was going to be my next question. Is the prevailing thought here the pitch clock? But is it just a convenient excuse or is there like legitimate data to say that your arm cannot be tasked with this uh, many pitches in this quick amount of time? I think that's certainly been the case for some guys. You know, Robbie Ray had one start this season and he's now for for Tommy John surgery in Seattle. And he talked uh, after that one start that he had to begin at first game of the season uh, that uh, he blamed the pitch clock then. And, uh, you know, they actually didn't didn't even rule for a couple of three weeks after that that he was headed for Tommy John surgery. But, uh, yeah, he has specifically, you know, voiced his opinion. And like I said, they're excellent story in The Athletic last week. I know Eno Saris was part of that. And uh, he's a, a real pitching guru guy. I pay attention to a lot of the things that he says. I don't think everybody agrees with everything everybody says. But he's certainly somebody that uh, I think is a – you know, very well thought of as a pitching analyst and so forth. And uh, he was part of this big story last week at the Athletics. So if people miss that, uh, you should try to catch up to that. That, that. Those numbers haven't changed that much in like the week or so since that story was published. I'm curious the physiology side of it for like, you know, your your muscles are kind of like firing and then they have to recover and, and how much – training goes into that and if training can kind of be developed to account for the pitch clock it's just kind of an interesting little thing that's happening in my mind right now but we'll transition to golf on the other side of the break it's the extra point carving out time in your afternoon for the doug gottlieb show right here on kdus am 1060 100.7 hd2 and kdus1060.com weekdays from 1 to 3 p.m 
to conclude our number one right here on KDOS AM 1060 on this Thursday, May 11th. Let's take a look at what's going on at the AT&T Byron Nelson. Uh, I had mentioned that uh, expect low scores. Well, I didn't expect that we were on a 59 watch, as Sun Yul No uh, has completed his day, but he did shoot 60, 11 under par, so he's out in front. Adam Scott just behind at 8 under par. He's done for the day. He shot a 63. Uh, so when we look at some of our guys here, Matt Kuchar, you know, he, he shot great. He shot four under par. Yet it's such a compact field so far that that's tied for 17th. And I expect that that will fall down the leaderboard as the afternoon tee times continue to roll on. Our guy Eric Cole is even through three holes. So we'll continue to monitor that. When it comes to the odds on favorite Scotty Scheffler, he's one under par through his first hole of the day. The AT&T Byron Nelson, they were expecting some interesting inclement weather, so we'll see if everything just continues to move forward as expected with some isolated thunderstorms today and a chance of rain with winds 20 miles per hour, but obviously not impacting the low-scoring nature of round number one so far. Our number two of Extra Point is coming up next right here on KDOS AM 1060 online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. Stay with us. Our number two is next.